the politics of this is that that I would say I wouldn't say it's juvenile politics, but I'd say it's undergraduate politics 101. Simplistic, you know, you get it on some of the uh, university campuses and so on. You have to create an enemy and a boogeyman and a and a, and, and and fight that enemy. And Israel has been that punching bag for the left for a long time. Um, does that mean I don't support the Palestinians? I support self-determination and I support uh, a two-state solution. But the question is, how do you get there? Welcome to Frank Talk. I'm Albert Badon, your host today. Um, I'm interviewing today, I'm having a discussion with my good friend, Peter Khalil, MP. Welcome, uh, Peter. Hi, Albert. Thanks for having me. And you are the member for Wheels. I understand that I was the seat of Bob Hawke. Uh, yes, former Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Do you feel that you are also carrying Bob's legacy? Well, I have his coffee mugs. That's the same mug that Bob used to drink from. Although I don't think he was drinking green tea like me. I think he was having uh, something stronger. <laughs> and that's but great. I do, I do. it is a great honour actually to represent a community that was represented by such a, a great Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, and people still stop me on the street and say they remember Bob, the older uh, constituents, uh, and how much they uh, think of him fondly and, and all he did for Australia. Yes, yeah, so Peter, maybe you can send me one of those mags. I would really appreciate that. So uh, let's start with your heritage. Uh, you were a son of migrant, and uh, like every migrant, there must be a fascinating story. Uh, what it was like for you as a child growing in Australia um, in an environment that was uh, uh, perhaps hostile at some stage. I don't know, perhaps not. You're going to enlighten us. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Well, thank you, Abbe. I mean, every, every story, migrant story is unique. Um, we're, we're individual stories, but there are some commonalities. And I think millions of Australians have gone through this story themselves. My parents migrated from Egypt um, some 48, 49 years ago. Um, and they were, they were fleeing uh, a, a region, as you'd be aware, in North Africa, Middle East, which was in the middle of war and uh, persecution. My father actually was um, fleeing because he, he wrote a, uh, a book that was very critical of the communist presence in Egypt. The, the KGB and Soviet Union were very much pervasive across uh, Egypt's political and um, uh, communities at that time in the late 60s. Uh, and he got in a bit of trouble. He was followed by the secret police and so on. And he realised he had to get out of uh, Egypt. Uh, I think he came to the place that was the furthest point away from Cairo, Melbourne, on the other side of the planet. Um, and similarly, my mom, mother's family um, left for, for similar reasons. My grandfather uh, was, again, also quite antagonistic uh, against the NASA regime at the time and the Soviet presence. So they fled to Egypt. They met here. Um, and I was born here, um, and my my parents, um, even though they were very well educated in Egypt, but my father was a lawyer, my mother was university educated. They became working class in Australia because, as you would know, they're the the uh, the legal system in Egypt is like the French system; it's a civil code, civil system. So he would have to have started uh, studied law from the very beginning against practice uh, in the Anglo 
system in Australia and um, he ended up working at Australia Post. He worked very hard to give my, uh, and my mum worked very hard as well to give my sister and I a better life. And the key of it was education, giving us an opportunity to get a good education. That was key um, because they wanted us to do better. They wanted us to actually have opportunities and to fulfill our potential. So they worked hard and sacrificed for us. I think that's a story many migrants face. They, they, they sacrifice for their children and their grandchildren to have a better life. And they all used to say to me all the time, um, you know, everyone says Australia is the lucky country, but actually we're the lucky ones for being Australian because we're the ones that have been given this opportunity to give something back to the country that's given us so much. And yes, it was difficult growing up uh, as a migrant, uh, as a, a migrant from Egypt in the 70s and 80s in, in Australia. Racism was quite overt, much more in your face. Um, but I think with hard work, dedication, uh, the doors that were opened by education, um, you can achieve anything that you set your mind to in, in Australia. And I think that's a story for, that many, many migrants uh, have shown is possible, the possibility the potentiality of this country, despite the, the struggles, despite the difficulties. Um, and so, you know, within a generation, um, I'm able to become a member of parliament, become uh, someone you know who has all these opportunities to give something back. And um, that's probably why I went into public service. I did work in the private sector a fair bit, but I did work in the public service, uh, at the Department of Foreign Affairs, Department of Defence. Um, I spent time uh, as a foreign policy advisor for Kevin Rudd. Um, and I also spent time in the private sector in New York uh, and uh, think tanks like Brookings in Washington. So I was given amazing opportunities. And just, just to make a point about Bob Hawke, before he passed away, the last time I spoke to him, I said to him, Bob, what is the thing that, that, that you are most proud of that many people don't talk about as much with your, you know, your time as prime minister? And he said, when he started, about a third of students finished year 12. But by 1990 uh, or 91, when he finished, it was almost 80% who had been completing high school. And I said, Bob, I was one of those um, young people who finished year 12 in 1990, who were given an opportunity for a quality education. Even though we grew up in a housing commission uh, and we were working class in that respect, um, the uh, educational opportunities gave us a path to make a contribution to this country. And even though it was difficult, I'm proud to be Australian, proud to be able to make that contribution to this country that's given my family so much. And I know it's given so much opportunity to so many other millions of migrants that have come to Australia and called Australia home and been successful as well. So that's basically the, uh, the, the short version of the story, Albert. But uh, Peter, so tell me about uh, uh, your education. So you finished year 12, as you said. Uh, thanks to Bob Hawke. And then from there, what? What studies did you do? I, I got into Melbourne University and studied law arts, um, majored in international law near the end of that period. Uh, and then a bit later, I, I um, used my credit card to get a master's in international law and international relations at ANU while working full time at the same time. Um, and look, even before that, Albert, we were talking about the effort that needs to be made particularly by migrant groups, but people from a socioeconomic background where they have to fight for things. You know, I was working as a cleaner. I worked um, night shift at service stations. Um, I, I did pretty much every job you could think of to get through university to help support my family because dad got uh, sick 
um, we had a heart attack for a period of time there and was unable to work. Um, so we had to, we all had to pitch in and, and work hard. Um, so you kind of learn the value of hard work and what it means uh, to you and your family. And you don't really take anything for granted when you, you're struggling in that way. Um, and I ended up um, getting a job at the Department of Defence after university. What sort of job? Sorry? What sort of job? What job? So I, I went into the graduate program at the Defence Department after university, uh, after my master's actually. Um, and I worked in strategic policy and international policy. Uh, and then after a year or so, I got sent to Iraq during the Iraq war. Um, as one of the uh, seconded, uh, few of the seconded Australians to the CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority, to work in Iraq. And I spent about a year in uh, Baghdad um, helping rebuild the uh, public the, service. What is a CPA? Can you explain what the is coalition, The Coalition Provisional Authority, it was the um, coalition uh, authority that was um, uh, basically the uh, governance body in Iraq after Saddam Hussein's regime was uh, removed. Um, and I was sent there by the Australian government to work effectively on, um, initially it was on rebuilding the Iraqi army, training and, and rebuilding the, Iraq, the new Iraqi army. But then also uh, I worked on um, demobilizing the various militias. So I did a lot of negotiation with the, um, the Shiite militias, the, the Sunni tribal leaders, the, the Kurdish Peshmerga, traveled around the country a fair bit doing that. Also, so please, uh, Peter, slow down that part, because that part, yeah. I think, is quite important. Uh, so, first of all, who sent you there? The Department of Defense? So, it was the Howard government. It was a, a cabinet appointment um, during, it was early 2003, um, and I was sent there by so the Australian government. it was the Howard government. government that sent you. Yeah, that's right. Um, and a, a, very interesting, I remember the when John Howard actually visited Iraq in early 2004 during Anzac Day, um, the ambassador came to me a month before and said, listen, we've got a very, very top secret um, visitor coming and you, have, you can't tell anyone. You can't tell anyone who's coming, but the prime minister is going to visit on Anzac Day. Who, who, was, the ambassador? who was the ambassador? Uh, it, was, uh, it was Orm, Ambassador Orm, I think his name was at the time. And he said, you, you, you can't tell anyone. I said, fine, fine, fine. He said, but I need you. We need you to actually brief because I've been working with the Iraqi president and the um, vice president, the national security advisor on a lot of these national security issues. After I'd worked on demobilizing the militia, I, I was uh, tasked by Ambassador Bremer uh, to uh, work on setting up the National Security Committee of Cabinet. So I had a fair bit to do with the Iraqi prime minister, or the interim prime minister that was about to be uh, appointed, as well as the ministers in the governing council. Um, and so they said, you, you need to brief the Iraqi president of the governing council and the vice president who are going to meet John Howard on what Anzac Day means to Australians. Very important for our history. And you've got to explain it to the Iraqis before Howard uh, meets them. I said, fine, no problem. I spent about an hour briefing the Iraqi president and the vice president and the national security advisor about how important Anzac Day was for Australians and our history, Lone Pine, you know, Lone Pine and Gallipoli. I thought I did a pretty good job out there, to be honest with you. Anyway, we go into the meeting and uh, Howard sits down. He's been told that uh, he was going to open up and discuss Anzac Day and its importance to us. And he says a few opening remarks to the Iraqi president about how important Anzac Day is. 
Now, the Iraqi president of the governing council at the time was Masoud Barzani, a Kurd, a Kurdish tribal leader. He looked at Howard and he shook his head and he said, I can't believe you lost to the Turks. And of course, Howard was <laughs> shocked by this statement. And the senior uh, Peter Cosgrove, Peter Cosgrove turned around and looked at me and the ambassador turned around and looked at me. And at that moment, I thought that was the end of my diplomatic career. <laughs> what have I done? But of course, if you understand Kurdish politics, you know that they are, um, uh, have been fighting the Turks for a long time. Um, and so that was a kind of a joke, which wasn't quite translatable, I guess, to the prime minister at the time. But in, in John Howard, who does have a, a good sense of humour, I spoke to him many years later about it, and he remembered that occasion. And funnily enough, when I worked for Rudd, Andrew Shearer, who's a good friend of mine, was, was John Howard's foreign policy advisor, and we would be at a lot of these functions together. Uh, and this was a couple of years later, it was in 2007. And uh, we were standing there, we were, we were saying goodbye, Rudd and, and Howard were saying goodbye to some troops that were on their way to Afghanistan. And I said to Andrew, I said, Andrew, John Howard shook my hand and said, hello. He looked at me really funny. Surely he didn't remember me from that uh, event back in 2004. And Andrew turned around and looked at me and said, oh no, he remembered you. <laughs> so he has a good memory as well. <laughs> oh, gosh. So let's, let's go back there. When you were talking to the, uh, to the Iraqi president, uh, were you talking to him in Arabic? Well, I spoke, yeah, I spoke Arabic. Uh, my dialect of Arabic that I can speak and understand is Egyptian dialect, which they kind of understood. I picked up a bit of the Iraqi dialect. But of course, the Kurdish, um, Masoud Barzani spoke Arabic as well. Um, but Isn't English, Egyptian Arabic uh, literary Arabic? Uh, Egyptian Arabic is um, very well known throughout the North Africa and the Middle East, largely because of the film industry, because all the movies in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, uh, Egypt was sort of the Hollywood of uh, Arab cinema That's right, yeah. uh, and film and music. And so everyone in the region understood the dialect, whereas it's very hard for us to understand the Iraqi dialect, which is very, very different, different words, different um, uh, you know, way of pronouncing things as well. Um, but I picked up a little bit of it um, and, and spoke English as well. But with the other Arab uh, leaders, the other Iraqi leaders, it came in handy. Uh, sometimes you would, you would do it in English, the meetings as well, because you had a translator in some of the meetings. So I dealt with a lot of the ministers, um, the tribal leaders, the Sunni tribal leaders, which I tried to get them to fight Al-Qaeda uh, at the time in Iraq, um, get some of the tribal forces into the sec Iraqi security forces as well as some of the Shia militia, which this is a whole other thing which is very interesting and, and has been going on for a long time, but the influence of Iran on some of the Shia militias was very, very prevalent even at the time. Uh, and so there was a real pushback there, at least when I was there, to try and not have entire battalions of Shia militia join the new Iraqi army, which is what the Iranian Revolutionary Guard wanted because they had certain relationships with some of these militia, particularly the um, the Skiri militia, uh, it's called the Supreme Council of Islamic Revolution in Iraq, which was headed up by Abdul Aziz al-Hakim. Uh, and some of the other Shiite parties and their militias had also relationships with the Iranian regime. And so they were trying to influence, even the, at the beginning there, the, the uh, reformation of the Iraqi military and security agencies. And we were pushing back 
uh, on that and trying to ensure that there was individual vetting and recruitment of uh, soldiers and so on. So I did a lot of work in that space. Of course, after we left, all that got thrown out the window uh, and, and there were a, a big numbers of Iranian-trained um, militia that became part of the Iraqi security forces. And you saw a lot of that ethnic cleansing that happened uh, in 06, 07, 08 during that mm. period. Um, mm. So it was a very, very volatile uh, period at the time. Uh, well, but, it was dangerous. It, it was. Um, you know, there were a couple of times I got a pretty big hearing a bit close and we uh, got shot out a fair bit. There were a lot of IEDs. There were a lot of um, rockets that came in. We were ostensibly in the green zone, at what was called the green zone then in the uh, Republican Palace. Um, and that got hit pretty much every morning. And I, would, I was in a little bunker, uh, sorry, a um, prefab uh, accommodation, which was out in the gardens at the back of the palace, which a lot of us stayed in. A very, very, um, one morning I woke up and there was plaster everywhere and there was a hole in the, in the roof and the bullet had come through um, to where, next to where I was sleeping um, because they would shoot into the air, into the, uh, into the area a lot of the time. But the rockets that came in in the morning and the mortars that were fired off the perimeter, uh, most of us would supposedly, there would be a siren and you'd run to the shelter, the bunker, which was underneath the palace. Saddam Hussein had a, a bunker underneath the Republican palace, which had a cinema and all these other facilities. Of course, we were sort of huddled there in the dark with torches at 5 a.m. in the morning, um, from the most senior to the most junior, uh, underneath there while the, the incoming. After about three months of this out of bear, I was getting a bit tired of running in my, uh, uh, in my sleepwear to the bunker at 5.30 in the morning or quarter past five in the morning. And I asked one of the, I asked one of the guys there, I said, hey, what do you reckon the chances are of actually getting hit? They said, probably about one in a thousand. So I thought, you know what, one in a thousand, extra hour sleep, which one would I go for? In the end, I ended up going for the extra, extra hour sleep because we were working pretty hard there. Um, we'd work from like 6, 6.30 in the morning until midnight every night um, and probably we'd usually finish the day. Um, I used to smoke back then, so I'd probably go through a pack of Marlboros and some whiskey just to uh, calm the nerves at the end of the day. But it was a very dangerous uh, period very um, volatile, very a lot of hard work, and it was difficult. It was very, very difficult. How did you meet uh, Colonel Mike Kelly? Oh, Mike, uh, Mike, uh, it, was, it was a great story, actually. I met Mike in Iraq. Um, I saw his moustache before I saw him uh, <laughs> as he was walking across the um, lobby of the of Dallas. That's how we met. I, I started talking to him, and, and he said, oh, you're Australian, I'm Australian. And we became uh, fast friends. Although one of the more dangerous things that occurred to me, happened to me in Iraq, we got shot at. There were rockets, there were mortars. Um, we were in firefights a couple of times. But I could tell you what, I was probably not as scared as I was when I was in the car with Mike driving through the streets of Baghdad because he's a crazy driver. And uh, that was quite an experience. Tell us more. With Mike. Explain that statement. Unpack it, please. Let's just say Mike was a, uh, a, a very, very adventurous driver. So we get in the uh, armoured land cruiser to, to go to a certain meeting somewhere in Baghdad or wherever we were going, and he was a crazy driver. It was scary being in the car with him. Uh, and, I'd, and I've been in uh, parts of the Middle East like Cairo and driven in, in Cairo, which is not uh, that easy either. 
So a fantastic guy and his experience and um, his mentoring of me while I was there was just exceptional. And um, uh, he's one of the, one of the great servants of Australia and our national security and his illustrious career as a, a military officer in the Australian army um, really is, is remarkable uh, what Mike has achieved during his career and his parliamentary career out there. He's been an enormous uh, contributor. It's a real shame. I was very sad that he retired. I understand the reasons. I talked to him about it. But I, I, I said to him very selfishly, Mike, I, I wish you'd stay on. I'm going to miss you here. And for self-interested and selfish reasons, I want you to stay here in the parliament with us. Um, also because of the amount of knowledge that he brings to national security and uh, foreign policy and defence policy to the Labor Party. It was a real, real loss. Uh, yeah, I, to, to the caucus. I totally agree with you, uh, uh, Peter. Um, so, Peter, you also met uh, Lydia at that time. So, how did that happen? That's right. My wife, now Lydia, uh, who Lydia was working for the US. She was uh, sent by the US government, um, and she was working on the um, setting up of the new Iraqi constitution on security issues as well. Um, and she was uh, someone I met uh, in the course of our work. It was a very strange meeting because I'd, I was actually leaving the gym and I'm walking down the corridors of the uh, Republican Palace having done a workout. But I was wearing, for, for some of our listeners who know Australian football, I was wearing Australian football shorts, um, football socks and army boots and a singlet. So it looked I looked a bit strange and that was the first time I ever met her. So I, I don't know whether that's what did it or whether... It, I overcame the first meeting, but we became friends. We worked together on a lot of issues um, while we were there. We, we travelled a bit to various, um, you know, locations around the country on, on some of the um, projects we were working on around the militia negotiations and the leadership of the militia. Um, and uh, you could say that there was a, it was a very unconventional courtship because it was in a war zone. Most of the Restaurants we went to in Baghdad ended up getting blown up by suicide bombers. Um, not when we were there, obviously. We were lucky. Uh, but they really did uh, uh, get, get shut down or blown up. Um, and so it was a bit of an unconventional uh, romance. In fact, every time we were at a, a public place, you, or even a restaurant meeting Iraqi leaders or whatever it might be, um, in the early days in 2003, before the insurgency really picked up, you could still go to ba outside in Baghdad. It was still... Uh, a security risk, but you would learn very, very quickly to keep your back to the door, uh, back to the uh, wall, and have a, a vision of the entire place. The best place for you to sit in any of those um, public places was in the corner, with your back in a corner, so you could see the entire public space and the entry points and exit points. And um, uh, you become very, very aware. Your senses become very, very, very hyper aware of your surroundings. So much so that I found it quite difficult coming back from Iraq, um, just just walking normally in the street, you know, having been um, in, in, in Iraq for, for almost a year, you really, you, your senses do change in, in your threat environment, if you like. Um, but so you're Lydia and sorry, I, um, sorry? Sorry uh, to cut in. Um, your story with Lydia is quite extraordinary because it's, it feels like a Hollywood story. I mean, you could sell your story to a, a Hollywood uh, producer, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, the, the other side of the story is that both you and Lydia are Egyptians originally, and you are both Coptic. 
that's right. And it was uh, just one of those things out there. We met in a war zone in Iraq. She was working for the US government. I was working for the Australian government. Uh, we became very close and good friends. Uh, uh, I, I, I must say I was the one that was consistently pursuing her, particularly initially when uh, she would receive care packages from her home, which had very good uh, food in there, which I would come down to her office to, to get some of it. Um, but but it was uh, an, it was I suppose an extraordinary story because we we worked on some remarkable uh, things uh, during our time in Iraq, uh, and she she did some amazing work um, in in the political setup, the new political setup in Iraq, the new uh, 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 constitution, the negotiations about the Americans leaving and how they would hand over for sovereignty. Lydia was sort of very much in the middle of that. My work was around uh, as I said. Iraqi army um, around the National Security Committee of Cabinet, negotiating with the militias. So there was some crossover in the work that we did. Um, and we spent a fair bit of time together, working together on various things uh, and meeting a lot of the Iraqi political leaders at the time, whether it was Jalal Talabani, who was, became president of Iraq, Masoud Barzani, the other uh, tribal leader in Iraq, who's still there uh, in the northern part, in the Kurdish uh, parts of Iraq, all the Shiite leaders or the Sunni leaders, the prime ministers, um, Jafari and, and uh, you know, Iyad Alawi and all of these guys we worked with in the very early days in uh, the transition to, to Iraqi sovereignty after the uh, removal of Saddam. But it wasn't an easy environment. It was very difficult and it was very dangerous. Um, and you, you, it was a war zone. So um, you were constantly um, being shot at or, or rockets coming in or mortars coming in and, it was, uh, it was not a pleasant uh, environment. Which is what makes your story even more extraordinary because you had this romance, you made the, the, the woman of your life, your now wife, uh, because you got married. Where did you get married, by the way? In Iraq or did you come did you no, go no, to the United we, States? No. no, after Iraq, um, we went back to Washington, D.C., where I, I, I got a um, position as a fellow... I went back to Australia first to, to DFAT, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, for a period of time. And then I, then I got an offer to be a, a research fellow, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute, um, which is um, one of the most prestigious think tanks in, in Washington. Martin Indyk was the boss there. I know some of the viewers might know Martin. He was... Um, yeah, I know Martin for, well, yeah. for a while. I was at the mm. Barnes Centre for Middle East Studies. And I, I, I published a fair bit on US security policy in the region. Lydia ended up getting a job um, as well at the New York Police Department in counterterrorism, given her background and her expertise. We moved to New York. I got a job in New York working uh, for Eurasia Group, which is a, um, a, a great uh, outfit that does political risk consultancy to a lot of Wall Street um, hedge funds, commercial uh, operators, governments as well. Um, so that was a very good experience. I'll just say, though, just to go back to Iraq, I, I wanted to make the point, I'm sure we'll talk about the U.S. relationship with Australia, but it was one of the things I, I really want to uh, point out was the, the closeness that Australians had with Americans. This, this, we've discussed this a lot about our history in the alliance, the U.S.-Australian alliance, but you could see it um, first. I saw it firsthand, experienced it firsthand working in Iraq where I was included in a lot of the, the big meetings with Bremer and, um, you know, General Sanchez, the head of the Iraqi forces, US general, um, Tommy Franks, um, 
even phone hookups or video hookups with Donald Rumsfeld or Condoleezza Rice, even one with, with the president, with George Bush, being in the room for those types of meetings and those decision that decision making just demonstrated, that even as a junior sort of officer, if you like, from Australia, that the Americans would include me in that um, was a sort of indicative of the trust that they placed in Australians. And of course, with people like Mike Kelly as well, um, they were, they didn't always listen to your advice, but we gave frank and fearless advice. Um, I wasn't a political appointment, I was a public servant. So I was able to give as frank and fearless advice as possible uh, about what was happening. And there was one time I should <laughs> relay this story where it was a couple of months in and we were, there was a meeting around uh, what to do uh, with respect to uh, the siege in Fallujah, which was occurring before the siege in Fallujah, sorry, the, um, the attacks by Muqtada al-Sadr in the south um, and whether US forces should be moved from some of the operations in the Western Desert in Ramadi and in near Fallujah back south to deal with the Sadrists um, and the Shia militias that he controlled that were attacking coalition forces, particularly Spanish and British forces. And um, one of the, um, the, we're in the room, Bremer's there and all the generals are there and um, Sanchez made the point that, um, you know, he was worried that if they moved too many US forces south, they'd get, they're already stretched and that um, there would be an uprising of the Shi'i uh, against the US forces. Uh, and then Bremer said, what do you think, Peter? And I thought he was talking to Peter Chiarelli, who's the um, the Marine, the head of the Marines, the general, uh, two-star general that was the head of the Marines that was in the room. But he's like, no, 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 you Aussie Pete. I thought, oh, me, okay. So just blurted it out and said, well, I, I disagree. I think the, um, the, the Shia are not one monolithic block and it, it, there are many Shia groups that would be quite happy if we uh, took out Muqtada al-Sadr and his, uh, his militia forces because they see him as an upstart. Uh, and we need to be a bit more nuanced in the way we, we deal with the Shi'i groups. They're not all one group that will rise up against the coalition or allied forces. And as soon as I finished saying that, and I realised I just countermanded or, or countered what the, the, the head of US forces was saying, the general in there. But that's the interesting thing about, and that was fine though, that's the interesting thing about that type of leadership that was demonstrated by the Americans there. They were willing to hear out and listen to all of the partners that were there, no matter how junior you were, how senior you were, all of that was inputted. There wasn't this hierarchical, or not as a hierarchical um, structure with respect to leadership and listening to ideas or viewpoints. Doesn't mean they always listen to it or follow through on it, but they allowed that conversation to occur. So I learned quite a lot about that leadership style while I was there. Which is what you expect in a democracy, right? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it was also, remember, a a appointed civilian leader in Ambassador Bremer, who was head of the coalition civilian uh, governing structure. And then there was the military leadership, which was headed up by, um, obviously, the leading general that there was at a time, and it was a kind of a diarchical structure in some respects mm -hmm. uh, about who makes the decisions around the um, operational matters. The same thing occurs, obviously, in sit-sit rooms in, in all of our capitals, yes. Um, and the, in the end, the democratic leadership does have the final say around operational, uh, not around operational matters, but, but certainly around strategic matters. And sometimes they leave the operational decisions to the military leadership. The point I was making was that there's a real 
um, willingness to listen to different viewpoints uh, in, in formulating a decision in, before coming to a decision. And that struck me as really interesting because I, I didn't have that experience as much in, in our, um, in the Australian context where it was a bit more hierarchical and I think the British structure is even more hierarchical in that context. Yeah, the Israeli structure is very similar. And the reason for it is that it's the only way not to tunnel. Uh, Sometimes when you have a logic in your arguments, uh, what happens is that the logic of your arguments may also make you disregard all other point of views. And by listening to them and opening up, it's uh, one way to avoiding uh, the, the black swan effect, uh, as uh, Nisim Taleb would put it. Yes, that's right. Uh, so, very interestingly though, uh, when and where did you get married? Oh yes, I'll come back to that. We got back married in Melbourne, actually. We, we came back, for we were living in the US at the time, uh, in New York, but we came back and had the wedding in Melbourne in 2006. Um, got married at St. Mary's uh, Coptic Church in Kensington in Melbourne, which was the first Coptic Orthodox Church in uh, Melbourne. And was also the place where my parents got married and they were the first Coptic wedding in Australia, in, in Melbourne, um, back in 1971 or 72, I think it was. Wow. So um, it was great to, to do that, be able to do that. And we, um, we had a, a, a reception at the National Gallery of Victoria. So a very Melbourne wedding. Is that the St. Mary uh, Church near the college where the, you've got a Coptic college? No, no, that's a different one. Uh, St. Mary's in Kensington. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. One of the oldest and, churches. Yeah. And now you, you have some, you've got some kids now. Two children, uh, a son who's seven and a daughter who's five. Time flies. Um, it's been a long time since 2006, but um, yep, they're, uh, they're learning from home at the moment, doing school from home because we're in lockdown in Victoria for those of uh, your viewers who uh, are not aware. Um, it's been a challenging time, but they're good kids, so they're, they're, they're doing okay. That's a wonderful story, Peter, it really is. Uh, so let's uh, talk about uh, your encounter with uh, Kevin Rad. Uh, when did you meet Kevin? Well, I actually met Kevin um, in Iraq in 2004. He came to visit as a shadow foreign minister at the time, and I was asked to give him a briefing on uh, what was happening um, you know, and, um, and I remember thinking at the end of the briefing, this guy's quite smart. You know, he might be leader of the Labor Party one day. I should keep in contact with him. Um, and I had my own ambitions to run for office as well and, and be an advisor and things like that. And so I, I kept in touch with Kevin. And um, when I got back from Iraq, I met up with him, had a number of conversations about things. Um, interestingly enough, though, I think it, I remember at the time, it was just before the 2004 election and he said, oh, would you like to work for, for us, for Latham, um, for the 04 campaign on foreign policy? Maybe I can put in a good word. And I'd got the offer. I was at DFAT at the time and I got the offer for Brookings. So my choice was Brookings in Washington, D.C. or Mark Latham. I think I made the right choice uh, <laughs> from everything that I'd heard. But I kept in touch with Kevin Rudd over that period of time. I sent him as much stuff as I could on, on policy and ideas, briefed him. Um, he kept asking me to come back and work for him. I said, I'll come back if you become prime minister or leader, of the, you know, leader of the opposition. And uh, sure enough, uh, he did become that in late 06. Uh, I got a call and he said, you know, 
Oh, Peter, I'm, I'm now leader of the opposition. Um, and it was very late in New York. I remember talking to him. I said, yes, I know, Kevin. We, we do get the news in New York. Um, and then we had a bit of a discussion and I put my hand up to uh, serve as his national security advisor. And um, within a month, I was back in Australia. And it was interesting because um, it's one of those sliding door moments, right, that people have in their careers. I had a really good job in New York. Lydia was working uh, as in a senior position in counterterrorism for the NYPD. We had an apartment in Brooklyn. Um, I was traveling around the world, uh, uh, meeting my clients in Japan and London and uh, working for different companies on, on political risk and issues like that um, out of my New York office at New York base. It was a good life. You know, you're not going to complain. You can't complain. Um, we put in the hard yards, obviously, in Iraq and, and all of that. And we were, we were doing interesting work uh, in New York. So it was a big decision to take the job um, as foreign policy and national security advisor for Kevin Rudd. A big risk as well. Wasn't sure that we were going to win that election in a couple months' time. It's always a gamble. But I think one of the things that was going through my head as there was this, again, the point I made about public service is giving back to Australia. And I always was never really driven by um, the money or anything like that. It was always about um, making that contribution to uh, Australia's national interest. Why? Why is that? Why, why, why did I have this thing? Well, apart from what my parents taught me, I think the other thing that kind of struck me over time uh, in the work that I did was that I, I really wanted to make, I was very lucky to be an Australian, um, notwithstanding all of the difficulties that I talked about uh, early on in our struggle as a family to, to make it. But I was also very conscious, very cognizant of the fact that I wanted to contribute so other people can have that opportunity. So Australia can be even a, a better country than the country that gave me such an opportunity that we can, make our contribution as well on the international stage. That drove me a lot, that I think Australia can still do much, much better on the international stage. Everyone keeps talking about us being a middle power. You know, we are in many respects, I think underutilizing our foreign policy uh, and diplomatic skills. We could do more. Um, we could play more in the, on the international stage uh, at, the, at the higher levels. I think that started to change, um, that provincial attitude where we, we don't get involved in the big issues is starting to change. As many of us who are pushing for a more ambitious foreign policy as well. And that was the context where I wanted to work to be part of that with Kevin Rudd, whose expertise was in foreign affairs, as you all know. And I thought this will be an exciting period for Australia if he, become, if he wins and becomes prime minister because he's very activist on foreign affairs. And I've spent, you know, obviously the last couple of years since I met him, being in contact, providing him with my ideas on foreign policy and, and briefings and so on. So I thought there was a real opportunity there for Australia to take its place on the international stage as a, a foreign power, a middle power in the region and in, in global uh, politics. And so I made the decision to go back and work for him. And uh, within a month, I was in his office in Queensland um, um, talking strategy about how to beat Howard. And how long did you work for Kevin? And it, you went through, I believe, the the opposition time, and also as he was prime minister, he was still his advisor, yeah. right? Yeah, for a short period of time. 
unfortunately, this is where the story starts to unravel a bit. Um, and I think I'm not the uh, only one there, but maybe I was a bit of the canary in the coal mine. But look, I mean, I was taught in the public service to give frank and fearless advice, which I did. And I did my best and utmost in giving that advice to uh, Kevin. Um, suffice to say that after a, a short period, after we, we'd won, uh, I was kind of iced out uh, of, of the uh, Prime Minister's office, the PMO. I think I was the youngest and shortest lived uh, foreign policy advisor to a Prime Minister. Um, I did a short stint with the Defence Minister uh, at the time, Joel Fitzgibbon, and then, I, and then I moved on back into the private sector and university. Look, um, a lot of people have written about this and talked about this and the difficulties in, in, in the in the rut administration, as it were. Um, but it, does, it doesn't matter, Peter, when they write. You've got your your own yeah, story I, to tell, so don't worry about I, when they write. I, I haven't really felt the need to... First of all, I'm certainly not defined by the year and a half that I worked for Kevin Rudd. I worked as an advisor for a year, year and a half, basically, for Kevin and for the Defence Minister just after that. I have a much longer career that spans almost 20 years in foreign policy and national security. So I didn't feel the need to write my memoirs about a year with Kevin. Um, what, I, what I would say though, is that the anger and frustration, and I think disappointment that we all had, that there wasn't a longer period of time where the Labor government could have been in power, both Rudd and Gillard, and the way it played out was a real disappointment, I think, to many of the people that supported Labor at the time, because it could have been so much better out there. We had su there was such an opportunity there, a mandate in 07, to take Australia to places that, particularly in foreign affairs, which I thought would have made a huge difference to people's lives and to the region. And it was just almost like we wasted those opportunities. Now, I- Give me I, an example. Um, Can you give me an example? The, matter, the way I thought foreign policy and national security needed to work was a long-range strategic and serious consideration on policy positions. Now, I understood in opposition that um, we were, had to be flexible and agile and that the media was really, really important uh, to win the media. But there was an over, a, a really strong obsession with winning the media of the day, the 24-hour media cycle, if you like. Now, and I understand that kind of was the reason Kevin's success, he was able to capture the zeitgeist and win that me the, the media each day and every day and build upon that. Um, but in government, you're governing. You're governing for the long term, really. And what you do and, and what you announce has ramifications in six months' time, you know, for our relationships. It can't just be to win the media that night. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit of clash around a lot of these things. My view is more of that strategic outlook on issues where you needed to you know think things through and think more strategically and unfortunately the, the the focus there in the office and the government was far more short term that's my view people will argue that that's not the case that that's for them to say but um it started to unwind a little bit anyway from an objective uh, viewpoint from the outside as, as everyone saw you know even things like making the announcement around the uh, asian union um, if you recall that, something that, that, that Rudd made an announcement on without and sent out poor old Dick Wolcott to sell it. And it wasn't really, it was a kind of a kind of a media moment, almost as a distraction for other issues rather than being something well thought through and engaging with the, with the countries in the region about it, building up support, 
with stakeholders, all of the things that you think you'd do for a long-term strategic objective, um, if you're serious about a policy outlook like that, that, that I don't think necessarily happens. So there are, there are others who've gone into all the micro detail about that. I, I would say that it was disappointing. I felt from my personal level, being iced out as um, a foreign policy advisor to the Prime Minister at the time, I thought it was me. Have I done something wrong? Did I not you know, do a good job and so on? Um, and very quickly, I kind of picked myself up and realised it's really not so much me. You know, I did everything I could. I worked hard. I worked exceedingly hard. And I thought I provided frank and fearless advice and good advice. Um, it was more, I think, the structure of that office and the way they went about it that I didn't fit into. Um, and so after a while, I kind of realised that it's not a reflection on me. And uh, I, while I was unemployed out of there, um, sitting there not doing anything, I picked did myself you, up. Did you resign or did Kevin fire you? Well, look, I was pushed out of the, uh, I think it was probably fair to say that I was uh, pushed out of the office. Um, and uh, By Alistair Jordan, no doubt. Well, pushed out of the office into the defence minister's office for a while. So. <laughs> um, and that, that wasn't working. And so I, I, I left and it was deeply disappointing at the time, but I picked myself up. I got a job working uh, with a good friend of mine, Alan DuPont at Sydney University uh, in the Centre for International Security Studies. I actually put together curriculum on national security and uh, national security courses for senior public servants, which I delivered. Well, I recall, I recall that, but, uh, but before you jump there, um, I met you around a time when you were working with Kevin, yeah. if, if you recall, and uh, then I, I invited you to come to Israel uh, on a trip with me that was just before the dialogue. We were kind of formulating it at the time. And if you recall, you arrived in Israel and uh, uh, at the airport there, the security gave you all sorts of grief. <laughs> brief before because of your background and i remember they were you did a tour de force to get out of that situation can you tell it was a three story? hour it was a three hour interrogation at the airport Albert. and i didn't i didn't get angry i mean i understand these guys are doing their job what was very funny though at the end of the three hours i just said i said to one of the security guys i said look just google my name and prime minister right and they found out i was the national security advisor for Prime Minister Rudd, and um, and then and then we're very apologetic after that, and and uh, I left soon after. But they were going through the normal processes with a name like Khalil and Egyptian background, and my passport had a lot of uh, uh, places that I'd visited, obviously like Iraq and other uh, you know other parts of the Middle East. So um, they were obviously going through their normal processes. Um, I, I I would note the other great story that happened on that trip to Israel. If you remember, um, Avidor, uh, it was Kahalani, General Kahalani. Avidor Kahalani, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, you, you organised a, a wonderful briefing from him um, to the group. In the Golan Heights. And he, of course he was telling the story about um, how he was a, I think he was a, a, a tank commander. That's right. And so he, he was telling us all this story when he was, a, he, he, when he was uh, leading the tanks and so on. And good old Michael Danby had to pipe up and say, and he said, he mentioned something about um, Egyptian Egyptians throwing Molotov cocktails into his tank or something like that. And good old Michael Danby said, oh, because my father was in the Egyptian army. And so good old Michael Danby um, had to pipe up in the middle of his thing and said, oh, 
that was probably Peter Khalil's father that, that was uh, shooting at you and throwing that Molotov cocktail. So that led to a very awkward moment where uh, Kahalani stared at me and said, is that true? And I stared back at him and said, yeah, probably, maybe. I don't know. It might have been my uncle. Um, and he, he laughed uh, and I laughed and uh, we shook hands. And it was a very nice moment because it was like my uncles and my father and my grandfather fought for the Egyptian army in 48, 56, 67, and 73. Like my uncle's a colonel um, in, the 70, in the 73 uh, uh, war, Yom Kippur war. Um, so uh, he and I swapped some stories, family stories about that as well. <clears throat> so that was interesting. Yes, Avigdor was playing you, Peter, because Avigdor is a very, he he's a very nice gentleman. So he was- He was. He was playing with you. I hope okay. he didn't take it badly. Uh, no, no, I, I know there were some uncomfortable moments in the trip, but that was your first trip to Israel. Has there been other trips uh, in Israel since then? I've been back, uh, I've been to Israel three times, three or four times. So um, that first trip was, what, what year was that, Albert? Was that 08? 2009, uh, 2008, you're correct. 2008, that was yes, so I've yes. been back a couple of times since then as well. Um, another trip that you, another dialogue I went to that you you hosted as well. Oh, you came to, the, to you came to the very first one with Julie Gillard. That's right, and I came to the one where actually where Kevin Rudd was foreign minister at the time. You remember that one? Oh, that was 2011. Yeah, I went to that one as well. That that's was a great when, group. That's when we we uh, uh, went for um, uh, William Cooper. Uh, the story of William Cooper, as you know, uh, the, the only uh, man in the world, and on top of that, Aboriginal man, uh, who demonstrated uh, against the Kristallnacht uh, in 1938. And so finally, uh, the Yad Vashem recognized it. And what I did in 2011, uh, I brought his entire, well, maybe not his entire family, but 22 members of his family came with us to Israel with Kevin Rudd, and where he was finally recognized, a chair in Yad Vashem has been named after him, uh, a, a chair that studies um, what it takes uh, during times like the Holocaust for uh, people to get up and do the right thing. It's a, it's a very moving story. And following that, by the way, there is a bridge now in Melbourne that is named after William Cooper. You know that. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I heard about that, actually. You're right. Now, that was a very good thing that you did um, and making that connection, that important connection uh, with his family. And uh, that I remember that trip very fondly. It was a great trip. And also, you know, the people that you invite on those trips, whether they be journalists or politicians from all um, sides of the aisle, um, what's important on those trips is because a lot of it breaks down the uh, stereotype that people have around... Israel and Palestinian issues and and how things work there and you know when people get to meet um, uh, Israelis in in that context who are living this day to day and understand the complexity of the issue and meet the Palestinians as well I mean we we went to Ramallah and we went to and we met with the PLO and we met with a lot of the, the Palestinian leadership um, people start to realize it's not as simplistic as you get with some of the uh, very, very simplistic kind of narrative in some of the media and so on here in Australia or some of the sort of undergraduate political argument that you get. It is a complex, 
complex uh, set of circumstances. And the Israelis themselves uh, are much more nuanced and understanding of all of these issues in a way that I think surprises a lot of people. I mean, I have a background in it because my family, but, um, you know, even with my family, Egyptian background, as I mentioned, my father, my grandfather, my grandfather's passed away now. My father, who was in the army, they all understand the, the realities in the region now. And, um, you know, while Egypt uh, signed the peace treaty with Israel in 1979 and Jordan in 94, um, what we're seeing now, or at least in the last couple of years, is um, with the UAE deal, is really just a formalisation of what was functional for quite a while. And that was the fact that the region has, has changed significantly. The geostrategic or the tectonic plates have shifted where... Egypt, Jordan, um, UAE, Saudi, many of the Arab, Sunni Arab states uh, and Israel share a common enemy in Iran and much of their coordination has not just been about that, but certainly uh, against ISIS as well and Daesh, which was another common enemy. And so, of course, when old enemies have a, another enemy, uh, another common enemy, they kind of get together uh, in a way that we're seeing happen now. Uh, so you, this has been happening for a while, you know, where, you know, we meet with people like, um, you know, the, the, the heads of um, the Israeli interior ministry and, and so on, who and they talk about their coordination with the Egyptian security and intelligence that's been ongoing for many, many decades. Um, you're seeing this happen in the region. That doesn't mean there's still not tensions and issues on these issues, on the, particularly on what is a non-existent peace process, but... The, the reality, the geostrategic reality of the region has pushed all of these uh, states together uh, to work together with respect to the challenges that they face in the region. And we, I saw this firsthand even in the early days in Iraq where you're seeing the influence of Iran in, this, in, in, in the militias in southern Iraq particularly. Um, and you've, saw, you've seen it happen in northern Syria uh, and, and why I was so disappointed with the Trump administration and the decision by Trump was the abandonment of the Kurds in northern Syria who were fighting on the front line against Daesh. That, to me, was a problem, as was Obama's um, uh, uh, effort to extricate the US from the region as well. While I don't disagree with the motivation, which is for the US to depart from a region that has cost them blood and treasure, for decades, I had an argument, I guess, with the uh, manner of the extrication or the extraction, if you like. Um, but again, you know, Australia, this is what I was talking about earlier. What role does Australia play in the Middle East? What role can Australia play in engaging on, on these big issues? And I think uh, for a long time, we didn't play a role. Um, and now we're starting to emerge. And I hope that some of the things like your dialogue help in that, that one and a half track diplomacy really assists that kind of um, process where uh, people within the national security community and foreign policy are very much getting involved in these bigger issues that Australia traditionally hasn't. Yeah, so to, let's stay with the subject of Israel. So you understand uh, Israel uh, very much and as a member of the Labour Party, I think you're one of uh, 
the proponent of a good relationship between Australia and Israel, uh, yet many people in your party now uh, have gone the other way and uh, they see Israel as, uh, as the enemy. Um, what sort of debate is there currently in your party? Now you don't have the Mike, Michael Denby is no longer present. There, Mike Kelly is no longer present. There are very few voices now that are left uh, that uh, speak for a friendly relation with Israel. So what's your view on that? Look, uh, this, this is one of those issues, Albert, where, uh, as you know very well, people can get dragged into uh, a partisan debate, which is coloured with the, the historical legacy uh, of this um, region and so on. Interestingly enough, I'm a kind of a unique, given my family history of having fought, what, four wars against Israel, kind of gives you a unique perspective um, of, uh, of, of, of the region uh, and the history that's familial as well. And I was saying earlier, my dad now, uh, even though he fought three times, 56, 67, um, or two times, you'd say 67 and 56, uh, uh, with Israel, and Israel actually invaded Port Said in 56 and blew up my uh, family's home it got blown up uh, by Israeli air, air, airplanes. Uh, luckily, the family escaped with 10 minutes to go. Um, this gives me a unique perspective. I can, even knowing all of this history, and I do support a two-state solution, although it is very much difficult to achieve um, so far away over the horizon that it's almost impossible now, given the current circumstances. But it's something we should, should still... Uh, aim for. What about the politics? You're asking about the politics of this. I've always said to people, it's not a matter of being seeing Israel as an enemy or a friend. My, my first thing that I put uh, in my um, as my guiding star is what's Australia's national interest. I'm an Australian member of parliament. Um, I, in foreign policy, I'm always putting our interest first. And in our, it is in our interest to have a strong friendship and relationship with Israel, which is a democracy in that region, which we have a long history with. Doc Evert, who was uh, our foreign minister in the Labor Party, um, was uh, obviously had played a, a critical role as well, not just with the UN, but also with respect to the establishment of Israel. Labor has a history there, there which you, you know very well. And a proud history on this. Um, and so it is in our interest to engage on that basis. Um, the politics of this is that, that I would say, I wouldn't say it's juvenile politics, but I'd say it's undergraduate politics, 101. Simplistic, you know, you get it on the in, in some of the uh, university campuses and so on. You have to create an enemy and a boogeyman and, a, and, a, and, and, and fight that enemy. And Israel has been that punching bag for the left for a long time. Um, does that mean I don't support the Palestinians? I support self-determination and I support uh, a two-state solution. But the question is, how do you get there? You don't get there by, by the undergraduate politics that we see on university campuses, by the anti-Semitism that you see emerge with the BDS movement. You don't get there through that path. Um, and even the Israelis and the Palestinians, the sensible ones that you talk to on your trips, will explain that, will understand that. You know, it's, it's key to them engaging with each other, the understanding of how to go forward. 
And so within our own party, uh, I don't think it was as bad, obviously, as what happened with the UK Labor Party, to be honest with you. That went through a very interesting and difficult period with respect to relationship with, with both um, Jewish, British Jews as well as Israel. That's turning a corner, as you'd, you'd, be, you'd know. Um, I don't think the Labor Party in Australia is anywhere near that kind of space um, at all. Um, and, and when you say voices, you're talking about people who have left and so on. Well, we as a party, I think, um, have always, and at least particularly in my state of Victoria, have always been centrist and centre-right on foreign policy. Um, and that is a tradition that we're continuing. We have a lot of strong voices in that space in the Victorian part of the Labor Party. Um, and that will, I think, continue as long as we have an influence on our foreign affairs. And so what is the role that you are playing at the moment uh, in the in Labour politics? Uh, you, this is now your second term as a member of Wales. Uh, have they promoted you to any position at all? No, I'm still a backbencher, Albert. Is that a leading question? Are you ready for me to go and say something about that? Look, I'm I'm ready to serve. But I want to I want to complain on your behalf if you don't oh, mind, thanks. because I just uh, um, hear all of your achievements and all your background, and uh, it's hard for me to comprehend that someone of your caliber and you still at the back there. Something isn't right. Well, I, I'm I'm ready to go whenever the leadership uh, gives me an opportunity. I don't think I mean it's true. I'm not going to pretend. I think the um, Uh, experience that I've had in, in national security and foreign affairs in the private sector, in public service, um, whether it be in Iraq or whether it be the, uh, you know, a senior advisor or whether it be uh, working in, in um, uh, national security is something that I could put uh, into good use, I think, um, in a shadow portfolio and I'm, I'm ready to serve when that opportunity arises. Um, I, am, uh, I am trying to work on policy development, Albert, Um, you know, and we're in a very particularly, um, well, I would say very sensitive period in foreign affairs, particularly in our region, globally, but certainly in our region, with respect to our relationships with the US and China. Um, I've always said that um, we, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, we can manage both of these relationships to our advantage, um, and we should, as Australia, we should be sophisticated. Um, I've been very outspoken, of course, around human rights and China with respect to the Uyghurs. You were talking earlier about um, William Cooper and his family and they're standing up um, for the Jews in Europe and Germany in particular and what happened in the 1930s. Well, the international community has to stand up and speak on behalf of the Uyghurs and what's happening to them and the horrible persecution uh, that they're facing. And we've seen evidence of this emerge. Uh, and I've done that publicly um, for the people of Hong Kong Uh, for the people in Tibet, um, but also on issues around international norms and international security and the rules-based order around the South China Sea. I've spoken up on that as well publicly and in the media. We need to have a foreign policy, and I'm talking about Australia now, that understands and acknowledges the important economic relationship we have with China, but that doesn't mean it should be, uh, that should sacrifice or diminish our standing up for the very, very important principles around international norms and international law with respect to trade as well as security. 
and I say that too because even the Trump administration has has uh, has not quite um, lived up to what we would expect with respect to trade laws and trade rules. Um, we, as a middle power, as a nation that is a trading nation out there, where 90% plus of our imports and exports go through the region, we have to have a region that abides by those international norms. It's in our interests. It's in our. It's, it's important for our prosperity that there's stability around the rules on trade. It's important for our security and our stability. And so we have to play a role. We have to actually step up. I was talking earlier about Australia uh, playing a, a more prominent role. Okay, we have to actually be a leader. It's no longer the case that we are suffering from the tyranny of distance that you know people talked about and Keating famously talked about Australia being at the arse end of the world. That's no longer the case. We are actually in the centre of the, you know, in, in a region, the Indo-Pacific, which is going to be critical for global security in the 21st century. And we have to play that role, a much more prominent role. You know, and, you know, in the past, people have looked to the US for leadership. I hope that that returns on the international stage. Um, and there is some leadership that that still continues, even in the Trump administration. I'm not completely critical of, of that. But there has been a tendency towards isolationism. Um, even in the Obama administration, the second term, I was critical of that. The, the lack of engagement in the Asia Pacific, it came quite late, but there was a lack of engagement there. Um, we want the US involved in the region. But having said that, Australia has to play that role, has to do that step up. And I'm glad that the government's doing their Pacific, so-called Pacific step up. But I've been calling for this for years. Uh, to play a more mature role, to play a leadership role in the region. And I've talked about the importance of middle powers like Australia working with other middle powers. And that doesn't just mean middle powers in our region like Japan and South Korea and, and even a rising global powers like India. I'm talking even about engagement with France. France, for example, as you know, there has a strong interest in the Pacific, given its territories here. Macron has shown a, a strong interest. We need to be engaged with, with countries like France and the UK and other countries uh, of that middle power ilk to ensure, and I call it the fulcrum of middle powers in some of the speeches that I make, that we are able to ensure that we there is an abiding by those international norms around security and trade because it's in our common interest for that to work. And that mm. means either China or the US, frankly, um, staying within that orbit and not flying off too far away or straying too far away from that. Um, and so on some things, the US is providing strong leadership, like Pompeo's comments around the, the need for elections to continue in, in Hong Kong, for example, and some things on trade. We've had to go to the WTO on it. Um, and China as well is going through a very, very difficult period. Um, and we've, we've, we're, we're uniquely placed as Australia to play a role in shaping the future of the 21st century. And I, I think we have the capability out there. The question is whether our political leaders have the imagination, the courage to take that step. And it's kind of scary because, it, you know, for a long time, Australian foreign policy was reactionary. And I say this for both sides of our uh, uh, politics. They were managerial. Oh, no, we don't get involved in the Middle East peace process, for example. Why not? Why can't Australia be an honest broker in that? We have great relationships with Israel. We have good relationships with the Palestinians and the Gulf states. Why can't we play a role at a seat at the table to provide that honest broker role, if you like? Why aren't we there at the table? 
You know, similarly in other parts of the big issues that facing the globe, why isn't Australia there? There's been this kind of um, uh, uh, reluctance, if you like, for Australia to be one of the big boys, as it were, or big girls, uh, if you want to be gender neutral about it. Um, <laughs> I think that's changed. And it has to change because it's about our prosperity, our security and our stability in this century, which means uh, whether it's a Labor government or a Liberal government, we have to step up to the plate and show leadership. This is why I've been critical of Maurice Payne. I call it MIA Payne. You know, a couple of speeches here and there does not make a foreign minister. Get out there. Tell us what you want to achieve for our nation in the region. Um, where's the relationship building with India? Where's the security engagement with those countries? Um, these are things that I think we need to be far more active in, Albert. And I know I'm speaking very passionately about this. And the reason is, I think this is critically important for, and people say, oh, they always separate Australian foreign policy from domestic policy. And often Australian foreign policy doesn't win votes. And it doesn't get, it doesn't become part of our political campaigns like it does in the US. That's changing too. Coronavirus has changed that big time. You know, we are all interconnected. The, 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 the foreign affairs, the foreign policies that we pursue are completely interconnected now. And how we manage that, how we lead on that, will have a huge impact on our pros potential prosperity, our stability and our security in this coming century. So let me ask you about uh, foreign policy um, of Australia. The Prime Minister uh, seemed to have taken a fairly upfront and leadership uh, position with China when it came, for instance, to the WHO. Um, do you think that it is wise uh, for Australia? I mean, we saw the black clash with China that was very quick uh, to be put in place. Do you think it's wise for Australia to take an aggressive stand uh, like this, or is our role more to be a moderator in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of ways? What is your position on this? Well, well, well neither of those have been neither the aggressive stance, which is is the beat up for domestic audiences which i've been critical of or the sort of the sort of moderator type role no i'll give you an example on the example you raised about the who and an inquiry now a week or two weeks before the prime minister made that announcement i was on sky saying there should be an international inquiry but the way i couched it was to say australia needs to work not just with china but with other international partners on setting up an inquiry okay because the world needs to know about how where it's emerged from and so on, all the, all the right reasons for it. Build up a coalition of, of countries, work with those countries to agree to that and then work with China uh, cooperatively to have that inquiry. But none of that work was done, okay? Um, the way I described it was that Morrison jumped out of the trenches, I'm going to use a World War One analogy, went running through no man's land saying, inquiry, 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 and then looked over his shoulder and realised no one was running with him. Instead of spending a bit of extra time in the trench, talking to France, the UK, other countries, um, and saying, let's work on this together. Let's put this together. Let's work with China to have this inquiry so that it's acceptable to them as well. Do the hard yards diplomatically. Do the hard yards. Don't just announce something for a domestic effect. And this is my major criticism of the coalition government. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, the, of their foreign policy. There's a lot of things we agree upon. We agree on, we have common objectives in foreign affairs and national security. 
the criticism that I raise is around the implementation, the means, the mechanism that you get there. I don't, I think it was right to call for an inquiry, but I'm critical of the way you go about it. Now, I was critical of Malcolm Turnbull because he, I called him the Basil Fawlty of uh, Australian Foreign Affairs. One moment, he's kissing up to China and being their best friend. The next moment, he's stumping his chest, uh, talking tough on China for domestic purposes. As soon as you start doing your foreign affairs to win over some domestic audiences, <laughs> you're going down a slippery slope. It's not in our long-term national interest. Now, that is where the criticism is. The, the, the strategic settings, whether it be around defence or um, the foreign, uh, the, the geostrategic settings in our region, there's a lot of bipartisanship there between Labor and Liberal on these issues. There's some differences about how we go about it. Um, and, you know, and things that we would do a bit differently around multilateral engagement uh, and so on. And, you know, the Prime Minister talks, Morrison talks about he was very critical of negative globalism and so on. And then more recently, he was talking about the importance of international organisations. Well, which one is it? Because you can't have both, you can't have your cake and or your, whatever that cliche is, uh, your, your, your piece of cake and eat it too, or your cake and eat it too. You, you, you either accept that international organisations play an important and critical role in, in the architecture of that international normative structure international law, the things that we abide by that are in our interests, or you don't, or you want to break them down, or you want to improve them. But don't play don't play the game of trying to appeal to the alt-right, which are all anti-international organisations, because it's part of their narrative, because you want to send that message to that particular demographic and then come scurrying back to, oh, yeah, this is really important architecture, we should be supporting it, which I see a lot of with uh, the PM and, and Maurice Payne. So that's my criticism of them. Um, on the objectives themselves, we're in agreement. I think there's a lot of agreement about the need for us to, to stand by uh, international normative structure around security, particularly around the South China Sea. For example, in fact, Labor, um, more so than the coalition, had called for freedom of navigation uh, operations um, in, in the South China Sea far more often than the coalition has. When Stephen Conroy was a shadow defence minister, you recall, and, and Richard Miles has spoken about it as well. So it's very interesting because uh, you were very uh, opposition leader-like. I've heard from <laughs> you in those few minutes uh, more about what is possible and criticism of the government, which uh, I understand seem to be very uh, a difficult task uh, uh, when you are on the front bench. Uh, so that is quite, uh, that was, your views are quite well noted. Um, now let's talk about immigration for a minute, because I saw a paper that you wrote not long ago on immigration, post-COVID. And can you cover that, please? Well, I, I talk about immigration in the context, Albert, that it's not a misdirection. Because a lot of what the uh, alternative right or alt-right or far-right use immigration for is a misdirection. It's um, a scapegoat. It's the usual kind of trope. It's the immigrant that's taking your job. It's the migrant or the refugee that's taking your job and so on and so forth. When you and I know, you yourself are a refugee and, and a migrant to Australia, look at how many jobs you've created. Let's rectify that. 
yes, yes, I was a refugee uh, when I was five years old. Uh, no, it was not in Australia. Uh, it was in France uh, because my parents were leaving Morocco and yeah. we, we were going to Israel and we crossed with the wave of immigration that was coming from Algeria because in 1962, that's when uh, the, the French Algerians were all going back to France, as you know. Um, the Pied-Noir. The Pied-Noir. Well, the, the pied and all the, all the stories that happened around the time. And I found myself at five years old uh, waiting for the boat that took about three months to arrive um, in uh, what is called the Camp d'Arenas in Marseille, in the south of France. And we were on our way to Israel. And so that's, that's my story of a refugee, uh, not in Australia. Sure, but you're a migrant to Australia. Definitely. So whether you're a migrant or a refugee, how many jobs have you created uh, since being here, Albert? The entrepreneurship that you've demonstrated. That, many that How many hundreds of thousands, millions of migrants have set up small businesses, um, worked hard, um, created jobs, built the economy? You know, I'm sick and tired of hearing politicians, particularly Anglo politicians, who crap on about how great the food is. Well, migration to Australia is not just about food, okay? It is about the values of hard work, the, eth the ethic, the work ethic that migrants have brought to this country, their values, their culture that they have distributed to this country in the arts and academia and thinking and music and, and in, their, in their businesses, which has created jobs, which has created economic, which has been the driver of economic growth. It has been the driver of cultural growth in this country. That's what migration has brought, not a souvlaki or a spaghetti, okay? As good as that is, or a kebab or whatever. It is about so much more than that. And it, it you know, this one dimensional, uh, I think, frankly, insulting view of immigration where these politicians get up at some festival and say, look at how wonderful the food is or how well dressed they are. Look at those lovely colors of the, of the dress. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about my parents. We're talking about your story of migration to Australia. We're talking about millions of people who have come to this country and who have built a life and have actually helped build this country into the wonderful uh, egalitarian country that it is. That has been a force of good, a force that has been a driving force towards economic growth and prosperity in this country. And migrants and refugees that come here create jobs. They spend money. They start businesses. So that's my starting point. The misdirection that you see from some members of the coalition as well, that is anti-migrant, is about the old tropes, oh, the migrant or the refugees taking your job, they're bludgers, they're on welfare and so on and so forth. It is utter, utter nonsense, utter rubbish. When you look at the, the, the raw statistics, everyone knows the dirty secret of economic growth in this country has been the high migration numbers to this country. The states would not have the economic growth they have had if it wasn't for the tens of thousands of migrants each year that have poured in to Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and other cities in this country. Okay? So on that point about immigration and, and what it means, the, what I called out on Morrison is this. And Morrison, in, in my piece in the Herald Sun and the interviews I did on 3RW, Morrison likes to talk about he sends that misdirection message to his a particular demographic. 
you know, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm, gonna, re I'm gonna reduce migration uh, and get rid of the congestion in Melbourne and Sydney. That's code for the anti-migrant message that I was just talking about. He won't say it openly, he's not that silly, but he'll say, I'm reducing migration. Just before COVID, he made this announcement saying, I'm reducing permanent migration by 10, 20,000. I'm congestion busting. Hello? Do you know where the congestion comes from, actually? It comes from his increase in temporary migration. 80, we're talking about 2.1 million people in this country who are on temporary visas. They're not like you or I or our families who came here as permanent migrants. They've been given temporary migrate, migration visas, temporary visas, guest workers, effectively right? That has increased under the coalition over the last seven years. That has been the primary driver of congestion because 87% of those 2.1 million settled in Melbourne and Sydney. So on one hand, Morrison's giving a message to the right saying, I'm reducing migration. But on the other hand, he's actually increasing temporary migration because he knows that the economic growth is predicated or part of it is predicated on higher migration numbers. It's a scam. And why is it a scam out of there? Because this country was built, post-World War II particularly, on the settlement of permanent migrants. Italians, Greeks, European migration, then the Lebanese and the Vietnamese and so on, right? Who came here to become Australian. They're proud of their heritage, proud to be Vietnamese Australian, I'm proud to be Egyptian Australian. Whatever you are, wherever you come from, you can still be Australian and be proud of your cultural heritage. That's what we are. We're a multicultural country. It's a fact. What we're seeing, what we're seeing is a temporary migration, which is not allowing people to settle in this country as Australians, where they not only send money back in remittances, they are uncertain about whether they're staying here permanently. It creates a, a real question around social cohesion and Australianness and around our identity where you have this guest worker effectively model. Many of them want to become migrants. They try and go through the, the temporary migration pathway to get citizenship, which is very, very difficult because Peter Dutton's there to say, no, sorry, you've got to have a four year delay and you've got to do this test and that test, making it more difficult effectively through the temporary pathway. So here's what I said in my piece. If we're going to have a COVID-19 recovery out of there, Okay, migration has got to be part of it. But we need to change the mix, right? We cannot have this temporary model anymore for all the reasons that I've articulated. We need to have a permanent migration, a permanent skilled migration um, element to our program. And it needs to be one that is in skills that will help us rebuild this country. And where, we, where those skills are there, first we try and provide training through education and TAFE and vocational for Australians to get jobs. And I'm not being racist by saying having Australians get jobs first, because you know what? I'm talking about Egyptian Australians and Vietnamese Australians and Chinese Australians and, and Lebanese Australians and, and French Australians and Italian Australians. That's what I'm talking about. Those Australians getting their jobs. Our unemployment levels are gonna be north of 10%, if you believe even the, the current um, figures. Um, so we need to have a program of um, training, jobs training for creation of jobs, creation of jobs plus skills training. And where those skills can't be met 
a skilled migration program that is permanent so that people become Australians. And there are millions of people that want to come to this country. What about all the people in Hong Kong who could provide that entrepreneurship here and build businesses here and bring their skill sets here? All the people around the world that could come to this country and help us flourish in this post-COVID period. And I hope there is a post-COVID period, but we need to think about this very seriously. It's going to be part of our economic recovery and we need to get it right. I think that where uh, your party usually uh, um, does lose the Australian people is uh, with the story about the refugees in, to Australia. Uh, we all remember the times where Kevin Rudd reopened uh, the, the refugees. We saw all the, those that take, demonetize them basically by putting them in boats uh, from Indonesia, sending them in totally unsafe conditions to Australia. And uh, very often uh, it ends up in tragedy. So what is your idea about policy on, on refugees? Well, I worked on a, um, uh, a refugee policy which I um, presented to the leadership last election and, and um, made a, spe a speech at Deakin University on and I did a lot of media actually on it as well. Uh, the motivation there was partly what you said. The, 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 the well has been poisoned on this issue politically for decades now. Um, you mentioned some of the issues that the Rudd government had, but even earlier than that, um, it has been an issue for us in Australia where you talk about refugees and suddenly the whole thing becomes polarised. Okay, it's poisons, this debate. You have people shouting at each other and screaming at each other rather than about thinking about what a solution and a way forward is. Um, and so there are key words that set people off and you can't have a normal debate. You know, the left screams at the right and so on and so forth. So I tried to find a way through this um, with some policy ideas. And um, what I, I put forward in a very simple form summary of what, what is a, a complicated issue is to find a way where multiple countries can take the burden of refugee intake uh, collectively. And it needs to be um, driven by the, by the fact that it's in our common interest in the region to do this. Because if we don't, um, the ramifications of the growing refugee numbers regionally will overwhelm many countries in the region, lead to breakdowns in stability and security, which we've already seen in many examples. There are some 24, 25 million refugees in camps or in community um, living um, in, 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 in parts of the world, in around the world, basically. And there are 70, over 70 million displaced persons globally. That's a massive number of people out there, 26 million, 25 million people who are refugees who haven't found anywhere to settle. Many of them are being held or, or staying in countries that are third world countries and are, are taking up this burden. Bangladesh or Uganda or even Lebanon or other countries like that. And so how long is this sustainable? You saw what happened in the Syrian crisis in Europe and how there was a flood of people that went across uh, through Turkey and across the Mediterranean Europe and all of the, the horrible things that we saw happen with that and the ramifications for Europe. We cannot, as an international community, allow this to continue for the next crisis that occurs. So what I suggested policy-wise was a very serious look at how we can manage the crisis in our region, particularly where we work with other countries in the region to have a, um, I guess, a, a metrics that's agreed upon 
around the intake of refugees by country based on an algorithm that might, might involve the, each country's uh, GDP growth, its economy, its economy, its population, and so on and so forth, its previous intake. And the reason I, I wanted to make it as fair like that is because a lot of countries are not doing their fair share. That's why I call it the fair share principle. There are many wealthy countries out there that are nowhere near taking any amount of refugees in the same way that we are. So you're talking about a new treaty. You're talking about a new treaty. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an agreement and an understanding of a multilateral agreement which sets in uh, position uh, an agreed upon intake, yearly intake, to start to dig in to that 25 million to take the pressure off our region, right? Now, why would countries agree to that? Why would Japan and South Korea and all these countries agree to that? Well, there are different ways to do this. If they are not prepared to, to take the intake that would be commensurate with the algorithm, if you like, they can replace that with a financial contribution that helps in the resettlement of this. So it can fund some of this. Um, I assume many of the very rich Gulf countries may opt for that. That's one of the options that I've put in this. Well, ja Japan would, because as you know, Japan doesn't take any immigrant. They take, I think there's about 26 refugees last year, uh, UNHCR refugees. So hmm. there are ways, I'm being very pragmatic about this out there. There are ways to do this agreement where you have countries put in a financial um, uh, contribution in lieu of the number that they should be taking. But it is not fair that Australia, Canada and the US and, and to an extent the UK and France are doing all the heavy lifting. And when I say that, there are a lot of Western European countries, but Portugal takes a couple of hundred a year. You know, there, there are, and I'm not picking on Portugal particularly. There are many other countries that are wealthy enough to take a very small amount. You know, even some of the Scandinavian countries that you think would take more do not. Even New Zealand, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you measure it per capita or you, you do it a measurement like that, very small numbers compared to what Australia takes. We take some, you know, 12 to 14,000 a year, sorry, 18,000 a year. Um, Labor Party is, is committed to doubling that intake. That's fine. What I'm saying is, we should have, uh, we should do the diplomatic work, Albert. Where is the foreign minister and the prime minister saying, hold on, this is not good enough. We're taking, you know, a, a big share of the refugees a year. We want to take more, but we want all these other countries in the region to do their fair share as well. Mm -hmm. And what, how do we get them to the table to, to come to that agreement? Again, it needs some pretty uh, nifty and sophisticated foreign policy uh, diplomatic effort by a foreign minister, frankly, that would be activist on this stuff. And why is this important? It's in our interests, Albert. It's in our national interests. Uh, we touched on the domestic uh, debate about this that has poisoned our politics for so long, right? Mm -hmm. Well, let's get let's leapfrog this. Let's get around this and find a way where we can actually start taking significant numbers of refugees being resettled globally through this agreement. Now, that'll take a couple of years of work. I'm not denying... Um, the, the work that would be required. It would require a foreign minister and a prime minister to put it front and centre and say, this is in our national interests. This is in, in our regional interests. We need to make this work. We've done it before, Albert. We've had ministers who have, and Australian foreign ministers who have been in the lead. The Cambodia peace plan. I mentioned Doc Evatt in the UN and, and Israel all those years ago. You know, this kind of thing happened. The Canberra Commission on nuclear disarmament. There are many 
different examples where Australia has played a prominent role in foreign affairs. And we can do so again. This is just one example of where we could do that for a real positive for us domestically, but also internationally. Uh, so, Peter, I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, and it's about the policy of uh, Daniel Andrews in Victoria and their treatment of the commission housing. Uh, you saw how uh, the Premier basically locked down the commission housing first before uh, declaring a lockdown on the whole state two weeks later. Uh, what did you think of that treatment? Um, was that fair? I mean, I don't want to, this question is maybe loaded, but I would like to have the opinion of someone who grew up in a commission house. It's not loaded at all. You know, this, this business about not being able to, to ask legitimate questions or pertinent questions or even be critical of your own party or your own government, regardless, people are sick and tired of that. I don't play that game. I have been uh, very open um, in my views, even within my own federal labour last year, I went out very publicly and uh, called for tax cuts for the middle class and the working class. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't particularly what my party was doing at the time, but after the last election, I was all over the media doing that. And similarly with the lockdown of the, the uh, high density housing uh, in the, the towers, I, I was um, uh, very public and very outspoken about my views about this now i understood i'm not a medical expert but i and i and i didn't second guess or question the state government's medical advice and the fact that they needed to do a very strong health response my questions were around the uh, the manner in which they locked down that housing particularly in the context of it being housing commission um and as, so, as you said I, I grew up in a housing commission it made me quite angry because in, in many respects and this is both labor and liberal governments for decades uh, people living in public housing have been rendered largely invisible out there. Um, and the, the, the coronavirus has shone a light on the disadvantage that, that many of these people experience, structural disadvantage, if you like, um, who live in, in housing commission in, in high density towers. And there was an opportunity to talk about that because Labor, Liberal, they have uh, overseen a reduction in spending on public housing part of our housing stock you'd be aware of some of these statistics uh, being in that field it has dropped significantly since the 90s uh, and been on the decline um, why is it important why is social housing important is it because it provides like education and access to education for the new migrant for the socio-economically disadvantaged a baseline a baseline from which those families can uh, launch from through their hard work we're not asking for any extra favours or handouts. Education, healthcare, housing. Basic amenities, basic baseline that allows people to work hard and then achieve great things going forward. So this treatment of the people in the high density housing, where 500 police surrounded them, where they were given no notice, where the rest of the eastern suburbs, the wealthier suburbs, were given 48, now, 48 hours notice before the lockdown on stage three. But these people were given no notice. Why? Was it a fear that they would just run away? That they weren't responsible citizens? Is that the assumption that was being made? 
Was it a fear that that was so bad in the towers that the, the spread would be uncontrollable? That's an argument that I've heard. But these are fundamental questions. Why give 48 hours notice to people in other suburbs who, by the way, who did run away? There was a massive... Uh, people packed their Range Rovers and their uh, BMWs with their Eskies and went down the East Link down to the coast, to their holiday houses. No one said anything about that. But no, the people in the towers, we can't trust them to actually stay in their homes while the health experts go there and check on them. That's what I'm talking about. It's the, it's the prejudice of low expectation and the condescending prejudice that the state puts towards people in those conditions. And there's another part of it, and this is the left as well, where it's like, oh, they're vulnerable. Well, no, they're not vulnerable. Many of these people are frontline workers. They're working. They're putting food on the table. Some of the younger second and third generation there are getting an education. Many of the, and they're mainly African, Australian, Middle Eastern backgrounds. They were very articulate during, the, during that lockdown. They were on the media explaining what was going on, what their needs were. These people can speak for themselves. They're not vulnerable. They're disadvantaged, yes, socioeconomically. They're disadvantaged by the fact that they come from a migrant background and they have to start out like all migrants have to start out. But that doesn't make them vulnerable. That doesn't make them weak. This idea that the, the, the state has to either um, look after them because they can't look after themselves or can't trust them to look after themselves, I find insulting. Um, and so shining the light on that, what had been invisible and been rendered visible was really instructive. So I asked those questions out of there. Where were the health experts? Where was the... The, why, why not give notice to people and say, we need you to stay in your homes, you can get some shopping, we'll, we'll provide it for you, whatever. Why treat them in that way? Now, to be fair to the state government, they said their advice was that if they didn't do this, it would have got completely out of control. We, well, I'm not questioning that. I'm questioning the implementation of it and the communication of it. And, and that's what I did in the public eye. Now, some people will criticise me for that within the Labor Party, that's fine. But, but I'm saying it on behalf of those people that live in those towers. It's, it's fine to ask questions about that and represent people. That's part of my job as a member of parliament. Uh, and I'll do it no matter which government's in power. That's great. Peter Khalil, I want to thank you, my friend. Yeah, no, thank you, Albir, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.